This is Martin Lindstrom, and you're listening to Radio Free Leader. Welcome to Radio Free Leader. I'm your host, David Burkus, best-selling author and recovering academic, and this is the show that tears down the wall between the ivory tower and the corner office. Each episode brings you an outstanding thinker to help you lead smarter by sharing insights from social science and practical applications for leadership, innovation, and strategy. Make sure you stay up to date with Radio Free Leader and get some great stuff we don't share on the show by joining our community. Sign up on the show notes page for this episode at davidberkus.com slash 713 or text Radio Free to 33444. We'll even get you caught up with our Radio Free Leader Starter Kit, a collection of our most popular episodes sent right to your email inbox so you can listen in just one click. Again, that's davidberkus.com slash 713 or text Radio Free, all one word, to 33444. I want to remind you as well, my new book, Under New Management, is out and available everywhere, wherever your favorite retailer is. You can check out more information on that at davidberkus.com slash new book. I think you're really going to enjoy Under New Management, how leading organizations are upending business as usual. Today's episode features Martin Lindstrom. Martin is the marketing genius behind biology, and he's back with a new book, Small Data, The Tiny Clues That Uncover Huge Trends. Now, for leaders, big data has been a topic of interest for a number of years. And Martin answers back, yes, big data is great. Let us not forget the importance of small data, tiny clues, and big insights, both for your customers and for your people. So let's get started with our interview with Martin Lindstrom. So who are you and what do you do? Well, my name is Martin and I'm a brand guy. Um, I've worked with branding for, I mean, almost 30 years. My, my, my original story began when I had my own Legoland and uh, basically I had Lego coming by and suing me <laughs> and they told me it was their brand and I said, no, it's my brand and that was actually where I started up my own advertising agency when I was 12. And I work in the industry ever since. But one thing I've done which is probably different from most is I always fundamentally believe that the world has to be surrounded around the consumer, the human being, and you cannot be removed away from that. So everything I've done, whether that is neuromarketing or it's the sensory or whatever it is, has been around that. And, and basically, my next book, uh, Small Data, is all about human beings, right? Yeah, I, well, so I mean, biology was too, and that's probably what most people are, are familiar with your work from. But yeah. you know, I never thought about it as that idea. You know, I kind of figured biology is sort of placed neuroscience of branding, that type of thing. Never really thought about it about that idea of observing the human, starting at the human. I think there's there's actually a lot of um, similarities there between you know my my new book under new management is all about that sort of the same idea. We should design organizations around the human. Yeah, absolutely. I didn't know that was the topic of your book, but absolutely. And it's so fascinating you're saying it, David, because uh, I think the reality is today and what I've learned that if you are smart, you use the consumer as your weapon to make a transformation happen within the organization. And by that, I mean, uh, there's so much politics going on, as you know, more than anyone else. And that politics is killing creativity, it's killing energy, it's killing passion. It's killing entrepreneurship. Um, but if you infuse the consumer into it, it's almost like you're resetting everyone's mindset. And as you do that, people start to see the world from the right point of view rather than from a very internal point of view where you are focused on silos. So I think there's a huge overlap between what you're writing about and what I've written about in, in small data. Yeah. 
No, I, I, yes, I agree. Um, I also, by the way, toward that end of, of zooming in on the human and paying attention to that, I heard this rumor that there, there are uh, years where you spend up to 300 nights in other people's homes, total strangers' homes, just observing and watching them. How, how did you get started in, in watching other people sleep? <laughs> well, uh, first of all, first of <laughs> I know, all, I'm just kidding. You really want to hear the story? Uh, well, first of all, it's unfortunately it's not a rumor. It is. It is shows how sad life I have. Uh, I mean, for a while I was hanging all those gold cards on my suitcases and show them off, and then I realized it showed I had no life at all. Um, here's the issue: if you want to be real, you had to get into the homes of consumers. And the other issue is as as you work with so many brands around the world, you you sort of have to get around the world. So it is correct, and it is 77 different countries every year. And I think this story actually began originally with Nestle, um, which, you know, a wonderful bunch of guys which sort of dragged me into the homes about 15 years ago. And I kind of realized very quickly how revealing it was to see things firsthand in Philippines or in Nigeria or in Venezuela or wherever it was. And that was really my wake-up call. And what I realized, and I don't think actually Nestle even thought about it, but what I realized during that session, that, that the staff almost adapted the mindset of a consumer and took that with them home and continued the dialogue, which actually was bypassing politics in a great degree. Um, so I've stolen that and of course using my neuroscience insight and my work with the sensors and all that stuff I've done over the years, I sort of tried to evolve that the, plas- the classic format of doing ethnographics into another generation which I call subtext research. And really it is where you're not just observing people, you're also asking and brainstorming with Christian, uh, with the consumer, leading to a sort of an interesting dialogue, where it's a dialogue where you are growing things in front of the consumer's eyes, in their own world, seen from their own point of view, and and I think that's that's really the story how it all began. Yeah, see, I think not only not only is it a good story on how it began, but it also to to me, you know, I, I read that I think in some of the materials for for the overall book, and I think it stresses the commitment you have to the thesis inside of small small data you know where we have this idea now that we don't need to do that deep level ground research because we have big data we have the internet of things collecting data points about all of us and so all we need is a spreadsheet and a couple different regression analyses and boom we can know everything about a person but i mean that's really to me that was when i was reading the book that was sort of that big thesis is no we've got to drill down we've got to do it on that level because we're missing little clues that might be huge indicators of trends you're absolutely right. I mean, I spoke to a CMO the other day, and she said, we're trying to manage the world by remote control. And when suddenly it doesn't work, that remote control, we change the batteries, fundamentally believing that that would be the answer. And I think in many ways, it encapsulates things. I mean, I did a speech the other day for 3,000 executives, and I asked them, how many of you have spent time in a consumer's home over the last two years of one year? And two people raised their hand. I mean, it's kind of symptomatic to where we've gotten. I think in many ways, we've become lazy. And as, just as lazy as we are when we're emailing a person sitting next to us. Mm. Um, and it's a little bit like we, we believe we can email the consumer and get the answer straight away because I need it now. And uh, I think nothing could be further from the truth. And actually, David, building on, on, on your book, I would also say that you know, some of the people I, I wouldn't say I admire them, but certainly what I'm impressed by is Rupert Murdoch as an example. He reads 50 newspapers every day. I think he has 100 and something newspapers. But he reads 50 of them. And when he don't like a headline, he will call the editor and say, that will not resonate with Mrs. Smith. Whether that is Wall Street Journal or is it the Sun, he actually goes into the shoe. Or another friend of mine, Ingmar Kampran, which is 
the founder and the owner of IKEA. I met up with him many years ago. I had to have a chat with him, and and I went into the shopping floor and and asked him where is he, and and the staff said, well, he's at the usual spot. I said, what's that? At the checkouts. So I went down to the checkout, and guess what? There, this guy, the owner of IKEA, was sitting checking people out. And I said, why are you doing that? When we had lunch, he said, because he said. Uh, this is the best research I can do. I can talk to people and I can hear why they made their choices. And this is really what's missing today. Yeah. Well, and if I remember, I mean, the story of, you know, in, at least in the United States, IKEA is sort of notable for being slightly smaller than American furniture, but also be, for being furniture you assemble yourself. And even that insight, it's not like they did a survey and consumers said, yes, we would love to save 15% by putting it together ourselves. It was a small little interaction with a customer that he had noticed and led to this broader idea of, oh, we yeah. can save space and then we can reduce costs and all of that if they're yeah. willing to put yeah. it together themselves. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and then my question is, how do you find out these things using big data? I mean, I think big data for me is almost a mining of past data, but how can you create the future based on the past uh, where the small data really is um, a creative space, a mandate you give yourself to explore future things. Now, that's not to say that big data doesn't have a role. Of course it does. I see it as two people uh, in a dance uh, and, and as a dancing, then you have that synergy where small data is all about the causation. You could say big data is all about the correlation, right? Hmm. No, that's a, that's a great analogy. I wondered if, so I, I'm, I'm going to beg you to actually tell a story I've heard you tell once before, mostly because I want it on record and recorded. But <laughs> okay. we, we met back in November at the um, Thinkers 50 event, and I heard you give sort of a small preview of what the book was about, and I was really intrigued. Yeah. Uh, not just for sort of the marketing lessons, but I think the broader uh, how do you lead an organization lessons without you know relying on big and small data. But you told a story about how uh, essentially a worn down shoe totally revolutionized Lego, and and I think it's particularly interesting you know because of your whole past history being the original inventor of Legoland and all that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's a fascinating story because Lego in two thousand and two uh, were very much struggling. Uh, they've done a lot of research using big data, concluded that um, the instant gratification generation had arrived. And that generation, in fact, was demanding a much quicker playtime. So as a consequence, Lego decided to change the size of the Lego bricks from these small bricks to gigantic building blocks. And then in 2003, a disaster broke through. The Christmas sales went down with 30%. Uh, kids just didn't want to work with it or play with Lego anymore. So that was the year where something remarkable happened because the small team from Lego went into the homes of consumers across Europe. And one of the homes they went to was this German kid, an 11-year-old boy. And they asked him, what are you most proud of? And the kid paused and he pointed at this shelf. And on the shelf, you had an old worn-down pair of sneakers. And he said, those ones. And he took down these worn-down, smelly sneakers, right? And, and they said, why? He said, well, I'm the best skater in town. But the way I can prove that to my friends is uh, on the wear and the tear of these shoes. In fact, the way I slide down my skateboard creates exactly the right marks with the right ankle, which is the evidence, my trophy to show to the world I'm number one. And that was the second where Lego had a wake-up call. In fact, that was the second where small data was born because Lego could actually conclude two things. They could conclude that time is not in essence if you manage to put the kid in the driver's seat. And they also learned that storytelling is really powerful. And out of that, you had the invention of the Lego movie, which were the second highest grossing movie last year here in the United States. And 
Of course, the rest of history, Lego is now number one in the world where they're close to bankruptcy just 10 years ago, right? Hmm. Oh, you know, I think it's fascinating. And it, it's interesting to me because, you know, Lego uh, as a brand was one that I loved as a kid and then didn't pay attention to, to be honest, during this reinvention because I didn't have children of myself until they sort of came along. And it's it's yeah. always sort of funny because I you notice as a, as a parent that you're suddenly like, this is a different company than the one that I remember. Um, and it was cool to read that story, to hear that story first, and then to read it again and see like, oh, interesting how that whole thing, it shifted and yeah. it shifted and, and it was, you know, we talk a lot about needing to be adaptable to changes and all that sort of, and it was because of this sort of small little insight, this, uh, this power of sort of telling that little story yeah. uh, became huge. Yeah, it did. And I think, I think this is not just a matter about Lego, it's, it's a matter about every company out there. I mean, Walmart right now is struggling a great deal. They came up with a second profit warning yesterday and and uh, they have the biggest data warehouse in the world can you believe that i mean it's two times bigger supposedly than fbi and cia combined right um and what they i'm sure are incredibly good at is mining data um, but one of the key challenges walmart has is they're not connecting with the consumer consumers feel really bad going into their stores and I know that for a fact because I've interviewed them. Um, so you don't get those data out of the big data. You you find out how to get closer to the consumer by by talking with them. As I tend to say, you can't really define why you love a person based on numbers. You can't say, I love my girlfriend because her, her hair, hair color is Pantone color 5526 or that uh, I, I love the last four digits of her cell phone number. That's really not doing the job, right? Um, so that is where we have to understand we probably have to swing that pendulum back again because everything is always in Sinos curve, going back and forth. And I think we probably have gone too much to the left now. Now it's time for us to go to the right. I, so I actually do love hair color 5526. Just, just <laughs> want you to know. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> totally I'm kidding. sorry about that. So... <laughs> The, the book is packed with uh, a bunch of other stories and insights and examples of this need for that dance of, of, of small data and big data and, and those sorts of insights. Towards the end, you lay out sort of a, a manifesto you call the Seven Seas Manifesto. I don't want to give away the entire story. I want people to check out small data. So I don't want to, uh, to ask you to sort of review it. But really, I was interested in, you know, I sort of was reading the book and going, okay, if I could ask him one question, it would be this, which is – you know, you said you just spoke to a room of 3,000 executives. From a, from a leadership standpoint, not just leading a marketing organization, but leading an entire organization, what are, what are the lessons here for how we both treat the ability to get better numbers about our people and our organizations and our customers, but also this need to, to dance with small data and small insights at, at a leadership level? Well, it's a very good question, and, and I'll tell you what I'm doing, because um, certainly I would say over the years I've fine-tuned a process which I think is starting to work very well. Um, so if you take uh, some of my work for a supermarket chain called Lowe's Food, which is based in North Carolina, um, Lowe's Food came to me, they were struggling a great deal, and they didn't know how to drive traffic, they didn't know how to increase the basket size. And what we did with the um, with the management was to bring the entire manage, management management and all its store, uh, store managers into the homes of consumers. I mean, no supermarket chain, I'm pretty sure, in the world have ever done that. And and it was frightening for the store managers. Some of them were sitting there stiff on the couch trying to ask a question, but they were too nervous to talk to the consumer. Others kind of loosened up. But what it did was it made them realize the world is very, very different from a consumer's point of view. We picked up some really interesting insight. Two of the insights were that the communities are dying. 
In fact, all communities are moving online. So there we're sitting in our clouds and really have no life. And what they wanted to do was to have a physical interaction with their consumers. They wanted to feel uh, that I was part of a physical community. And because the churches were closing down, the sports clubs were closing down, we saw an opportunity. The second thing I learned, and this is crazy, David, but I had to learn from... um, from going through their passwords with permission, I want to add, um, because passwords actually on computers, on your cell phone, whatever it is, are revealing insight about uh, your emotions. Quite often we capture passwords as a way to store memories or things we enjoy in our life or things we treasure to have something to a sacred place we go back to. So by analyzing passwords, we actually realized a lot of people were dreaming in the past in that region. In fact, a lot of people wanted to be children again. And that was the two insights we used as we recreated this whole supermarket chain. We took all the the leaders from the organization into a room for 48 hours. We hang all the different issues from all these consumers across the region on the walls. We asked everyone to reveal what they're learning. And then we reconstructed everything from the consumer point of view. And that is really the key essence here, David. The key essence of this is when you feel part of a process, when you suddenly remove politics because we all have another point of view, which is a consumer, people are willing to make a change happen. And in nine months, we changed the entire supermarket chain. I mean, it's very rare you'll see that. And today it is you know, going up in sales like you've never seen before. And yes, it is almost like a hospitality company. Yes, it is. Basically, your community was moved inside uh, the store. You have people ranting at each other, ro- shouting at each other. You have people dancing. I'm not kidding. You should go there if you have a minute. But it will show you how the engagement using the consumer and the staff in a systematic way can transform companies. And it, and it just demonstrates that, like you said, the systematic way, the, that, that dance between the two. And really, if, you, if you're a leader and you need to know your entire organization, that means you can't just look at a spreadsheet, you know, which is, you know, and I'm guilty of this. You know, I teach in a business school and I think we sort of over rely on that, which is one of the reasons I really love this insight, not even just from a marketing and branding and, and consumer standpoint, but an entire organization. You can't know it if you're just sitting behind the desk looking at the spreadsheet. You have to get out and look. Uh, at what's going on, at what's going on with consumers, how they're interacting. You have to sort of have that firsthand small insights thing. So I absolutely love that. The The book, again, is small data, the tiny clues that uncover huge trends. I wonder if we could switch to from the book to you. I get my chance to, I, to ask Martin Lindstrom five questions. Is that okay? Uh, absolutely. Bring it on. Make them uh, tough. All right. So, <laughs> our, well, they, they are tough. They're fortunately they're the same questions we ask everybody, right? So, oh, uh, cool. So what is the best advice you've ever received? The best advice I've ever uh, always received from anyone has really been to be present. Um, I, uh, I've skipped my smartphone um, and it's been a detox for some time. Uh, I, I'm trying to, when I'm, when I'm standing waiting for someone, that I'm present and observing people. And as I'm observing people, I see the world in a different light. I think today there's been sort of a habit that as soon as someone is, you know, you're waiting for someone in a bar and they're not showing up, you grab your smartphone and just do something with it, anything with it, just to show you're not a loser to the world. But it's that space of boredom where you're bored, where you also generate creativity. And it's that creativity which is typically a reflection of your surroundings. And if you are not training that skill, just like a muscle, then you'll die. And I think we need to maintain that. So that's probably one of the best advices I've received. I agree. I agree. What does an average day look like for you, especially when you're you know, not staying in someone else's house? 
Um, an average day is, for everyone else, I think, on planet Earth, not very average. But typically, I'm in a new country every day. Uh, so I am definitely on a plane. If I'm not on a plane, I'm on my way to the airport. Uh, I sleep in the sky on average uh, one-fourth of the time a year. Um, so it's quite a lot of plane stuff. An average day is a mixture between three things. Uh, I tend to um, to swim a lot. So I always swim in a swimming pool somewhere in the world. And in fact, it, that book, my small data book, is actually written entirely in a swimming pool. Can you believe it? A hmm. notepad in its end and then I sort of rewritten it, of course, if you go out of the pool and you have all these wet pieces of paper. But really, um, I spend a lot of time because that is what I call the water moment. And, and this is an advice to everyone. We all have water moments. Water moments is where you are in another dimension of your body. Um, some people get it when they're running. Some people when they're in contact with water. That is where you get free flow of, of uh, creative things. Thinking. And I think it's very important for everyone to identify the water moment. So yes, I swim or else I'm in the sky or else I'm spending a lot of time with the big corporations around the world, uh, giving them advice and telling them about what I've seen in those real homes when, of course, I'm not in those homes, right? Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. What are you reading right now? Hopefully not reading while you're swimming, but what are you reading right now? <laughs> well, I'm going to tell you something which will shock you based on your education. Right? I don't read. I have never read a business book. And I'll tell you why, because I'm so afraid of uh, stealing stuff from other people. So I stopped reading business books about 15 years ago. Of course, I read novels and, and, and uh, literature in general, but uh, at the, I'm actually trying to read the Quran at the moment uh, to understand other religions. It's not reflecting my religion. It's showing that I just want to understand every aspect of religion. But in terms of business books, I haven't read one for 15 years. Hmm. Interesting. What do you believe that most people don't? Um, I believe in three things which most people don't. I believe that uh, you have um, five seconds to review your entire life the day you are dying, you're hit by a car, you're flying in the air. And as you are flying in the air, you basically rewind your whole life backwards somehow. And what I believe in is that as I'm just about to die, I want to end my sentence by saying I did everything I wanted to do. I think a lot of people say they believe in it, but I don't think they live that way. And I think that's, that's one issue. I fundamentally believe that I am a kid inside and I want to maintain my kid inside. So I think, if I had to be honest, I think I'm 12 years inside. Uh, I'm afraid of growing up because it's that creativity and that freedom you have to be crazy in your thinking, which, which I think is helping me to get where I am. Um, and I think the risk is that everyone treats themselves as being so adult that the child inside disappears. So that's probably the second thing. And I believe uh, also in transition points in my life. So I always wear black, and I'm sure you've seen that, at least when we met in, in London last time, you, you saw my black, my black uniform. And it is what it is. It is a uniform. I fundamentally believe we need to have transition points in our life because we sucked into a blend life where we wake up, we grab our phone, and we're at work from the second we are awake. Um, and then we very... very <laughs> We don't really switch off during that whole journey throughout the day. Now, it re it's re reflected in our lives. I mean, we don't sh shut down our computers anymore. We don't reboot our computers anymore. We don't do that because we don't shut down our brains anymore. And, and I think it's very unhealthy. I think that moment you have when you go into the cinema and you see this amazing movie and you leave again and it's almost like you're going into another world, that feeling is what we have to feel quite often. 
people don't feel that anymore. So what I do is I, I wear my clothes to tell my body uh, what mindset I should be in. And when I take off my black clothes and I put on my shorts in funny colors, then I know subconsciously I'm in another mindset. And that allows me to transition from one mind to another. I don't think a lot of people believe in that anymore. I think people believe that everything should be blend together. And I think this, it's too dangerous somehow for our life and our health. No, I, I think that's a great point. I mean, uh, try as I might to sort of put the phone, the computer in another room, et cetera. It, when I get home, it, it doesn't work. And, you know, maybe I need to go to what you did and go to uh, essentially downgrade and, and buy a dumb phone instead of a smartphone yeah. for sure. Well, that is, that's definitely the new trend. I think uh, I see more and more thought leaders and you should definitely be one of them uh, to, to do that because he's issue. Uh, and I notice it. It's addictive. The stuff is addictive. You know, you want to read an article or write an article or whatever you do, and you just can't concentrate. You want to have what I call a candy moment. A candy moment is where you write something for 20 minutes, and then you go into some stupid website and do something. Or you check your Facebook or you do something, right? And it's just not healthy because I don't think our concentration span is strong enough, at least as not as much as it was just 20 years ago. So I think that's very important uh, insight, right? I agree. I agree. Okay, last question. The title of the show is Radio Free Leader. In your view, what makes someone a leader? Three things. A leader is, for me, a person which are adapting things from the world of religion. I actually do believe that really true leaders also have a twist of religious behavior in them. And by that I mean, uh, and there's ten elements which for me define uh, a powerful religion, but let me just take three of them. One is uh, rituals. I think a true leader should have rituals. The founder of, of Walmart, as you know, he had his rituals. He was doing his dances and his chowows every morning. And when I meet former Walmart staff today, they still do it because it creates a, a sense of belonging. The second thing is the leader needs to have a powerful and very visionary mind. And a visionary mind is not spreadsheet and share prices. And I think a lot of true leaders today uh, are aware of that, but I think most are fooled by the uh, by the market to become too focused on the rational side. We don't buy. I, I, you don't make people strive for um, for money unless they are on Wall Street. I think people want to strive for something slightly higher to give them a fulfillment uh, in life. And I think just to sidetrack our conversation here for a second. I'm going to say something very politically incorrect now, but I actually do believe that pension funds uh, in many ways are destroying companies because pension funds are allowing people to buy stuff without emotions, which then is having this negative effect on, on leaders, which no longer can infuse that visionary mindset into the organization because everything is driven by the share price this very moment. So vision is number two in, in my mind. And I think the third thing which is defining leaders is that they have an instinct which is so strong that they can think as a consumer. They are behaving in the shoes of the consumer. And time after time when I see really strong leaders, they actually have that ability of mirroring the mindset of a consumer and never lose sight of that. And that's three points. No, I think that's that's brilliant. And that's actually a, another great insight for why, even though, I mean, I think a lot of people may have sort of put this book in the marketing category. When I heard you speak at Thinkers 50, and again, when I was reading and I thought, no, this is a broader leadership book, because you're exactly right. Whether whether you use the consumer uh, as the leader of a for-profit or you use stakeholder or whatever it is, you have to understand that at a ground level. And that involves not just looking at spreadsheets, but getting in people's homes, interacting in the, at the checkout, whatever it is that can get you that down-to-earth view, that small data view. I think it's a huge insight. So again, the book, Small Data, The Tiny Clues That Uncover Huge Trends. Martin, thank you so much for joining us on Radio Free Leader. Thank you. 